Open your Bibles to Psalm 55 this morning, Psalm 55, page 603, if you're using a Bible provided, 603. There's one underneath a chair in the row in front of you. So I've got a tough question to start with this morning. I don't really want you to answer this out loud on fear that you may incriminate yourself. Are you a complainer? Now turn to the person next to you and ask them, am I a comp- No, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> well, I, I, I've known a few complainers in my life, and I won't tell you who they are in case they might be here this morning. But um, sometimes people who complain um, will say this in their defense, no, I'm not a complainer. I, I just like to vent. You ever heard that? I just, I just need to vent today. And then maybe those who are more biblical and more godly and, and uh, all those things might say, well, isn't lament biblical? <laughs> Doesn't the Bible have many lamenting psalms in them where people appear to be complaining greatly? I mean, isn't this a biblical, maybe even a spiritual gift? Um, <laughs> so we can pray that that might be true. <laughs> and so... The idea of complaining and should we complain, um, and even the idea this morning we're going to talk about biblical complaint is how, how do we reconcile the proper complaint with a familiar verse for many, Philippians 2.14. I would say this is one of the best parenting verses of all time. If you have not used this repeatedly, parents, memorize this verse, do all things without grumbling or disputing. How many of you are more familiar with the, the translation, do all things without grumbling or complaining? I, I tried to find that. I don't think any translation has a complaining unless I missed it. It's kind of funny. I thought it was complaining. I looked up the verse. I'm like, it's not complaining? So I checked the, e, the NIV. That always has better words, right? And uh, it didn't have it there either. And then I looked it up in King James in case I remembered it from childhood. It wasn't in there. So I don't know. Maybe we've just all changed it in our heads. Uh, we do that sometimes with Scripture where it becomes so familiar. But uh, what do we do with verses that say, do all things without grumbling or disputing, and then we think of all the times where the Bible has and, and laid out complaining. As we think through what it means to cast your burden on the Lord in prayer, we have some things to learn from the Scripture this morning about complaining. So before we dig in, let's pray together. Lord, it is hard for us and impossible for us on our own to understand the Scripture to understand where things might appear to be contradictory, where things appear to not line up, but they do, they always do in your perfect word. It's only our understanding. And so we need your spirit to clear up our confusion, to enlighten our eyes and our hearts, to understand rightly what the word of God is saying in Psalm 55. And so help us this morning. We need you. We're dependent upon you. Speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 55. Follow along in your Bible as I read. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. 
Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. This is God's divine, gracious revelation to us this morning. Are you listening to it? Okay, keep it up all the way through. Listen to it. (laughs) Our psalm this morning has the theme as cast your burden on the Lord. So what we see here is David doing what he then tells us we must do. So back at the beginning of the psalm, we saw some directions. We have another congregational teaching psalm that is supposed to be played on the guitar. All right, I summarized all of that. We've talked about this a lot. It's to the choir master, it's congregational, with stringed instruments, a lyre, but we don't have lyres around anymore. That's the instrument, L-Y-R-E, a lyre. Uh, We have guitars. And then we have a mascal, which is a teaching psalm. So this is what it is. The specific setting of this psalm is not given, yet there are some details given that that bring some specific situations in David's life to mind. Are you familiar with how many times David was betrayed? Are you familiar with who betrayed David and, and how he was betrayed? If not, now study it in 2 Samuel. Read through it and see what these are. You should have some of those if you've been a Christian a long time. If you've been doing the Bible reading challenge, some thoughts should be focusing in on your mind. But what's interesting here is though David is very specific in a sense in his psalm about what is going on when he writes this, the specificity is not given about which account it is or about any account in the scripture. And so as many commentators will take their best guess, when God doesn't tell us, we should be careful at being dogmatic in our conclusions. And I believe that if God wanted us to know, he would have told us here as he has in other psalms, So I believe he leaves it unspecified on purpose. So if you try to find a specificity, that's the problem. Sometimes when we see a psalm in a specific uh, setting, then we say, well, I'm not in that situation, so this doesn't really apply to me because I'm, I'm in a different one. But when God leaves it more ambiguous, then we can draw from it more uh, importantly specifics for our lives, our situations that might not fit with the specific situation in David's life. So If the setting was important, God would have told us. Therefore, the setting isn't important. Now, what we need to see this week, as we saw last week, is that this entire psalm is a prayer. This prayer has two parts. David complains and David casts. He complains and then he casts. So the first thing we see in verses 1 to 5, David complains to God. David complains to God. What is great here about this psalm, one of the great things, not the only great thing, is that David's response and reaction is prayer. Give ear to my prayer, O God. In the midst of his challenge, in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of betrayal, what's David's first response? Prayer. Is prayer your first response to hardships, difficulties, oppression, Betrayal, these issues. Is your knee-jerk reaction to any and all troubles of life to go to the Lord in prayer? And I've been a Christian almost my entire life. I did not leap with the Holy Spirit in the womb, I don't believe, but I was uh, saved from a very young age. I don't remember ever a time when I didn't really believe or trust, but, but since probably the age of six, I made a, a specific profession of faith and have followed that through. But I still struggle 42 years of professing Christian. Some of you have got me beat by a few, but still struggle at times with prayer being my first response. 
I mean, this is just a repeated theme in the scripture. May prayer be our first response. We hear bad news. We have difficulties. Things happen. Go to the Lord in prayer. That's what David does. He goes to the Lord. Give ear to my prayer, O God. And what does he ask for? He asks God to hear and answer. He asks God to hear and answer. Now, this part of the psalm is a complaint. Twice complaints is mentioned. And so David lets us know that he is complaining. But in his complaint, he mixes in some specific requests. And last week, we saw a very similar request. And we talked about how important it is to ask for what God has already promised to do. God promises to hear and answer our prayers. Yet that doesn't mean that we take his hearing and his answering for granted. Hear me, answer me. If God doesn't hear our prayers, what good are they? Many times we've felt like our prayers are just hitting the ceiling, like they're going nowhere. That's our way of saying it doesn't seem as if God is hearing. It doesn't seem as if God is hearing what I'm saying. He's not answering. He's not hearing. I feel like I'm talking to myself. That's what David is saying in response to that kind of feeling or that kind of thought. Please, Lord, hear and answer. God has promised these things, but we pray his promises back to him. He wants God to do what he's asking God to do. And therefore, if God were to hear and to answer, I believe David is saying that he would get his request in the affirmative. Tracy is always quick to answer and say things to me when I say, well, you know, uh, we pray that God would, would answer our prayers. She said he always answers our prayers. So she has taught me that in 23 years of marriage. The one thing she taught me, God always hears. You caught that, didn't you? Some of you did. The rest of you need to wake up. He always hears and answers. He answers in three ways, yes, no, and maybe, or wait. And so the idea here is we're, when we say, God, hear our prayer and answer us, we're asking for him to say yes. And that's okay to ask God to say yes. And that's what he's doing here. Now, he asks God to hear and answer, and then he enumerates to God the specifics of his situation. He enumerates to God the specific of his situation. So he goes from asking into complaint. Now, he calls it a complaint. He is restless. He moans. And he wrestles and is restless and moans because of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. And this enemy drops trouble on David. Very poetic. You can feel it, can't you? Trouble gets dropped on you. Have you ever felt like that? This enemy, these enemies are angry. They bear a grudge against David. His heart is in anguish. He is terrified to death. Fear and trembling and horror overwhelms him. And in response to this, all he wants to do is to get away. If only he could grow wings and fly far away. Then, then, and only then, he would find rest in the wilderness. He longs for peace and solitude in the wilderness. And there he could find shelter from the raging wind and violent storm that is in his life. Have you ever prayed like this? Have you ever complained to God like this? Can you you sympathize with David? Do you know how this feels? Are you familiar with these kinds of thoughts? Maybe this is where you are right now. Tossed by the winds shaken by the storm, uh, terrified, fear and trembling, anger, heart is in anguish, horror overwhelming you. You're moaning. It's just so difficult. Things are so hard. And it might not be because of human enemies like David. It might be other terrible circumstances. But can you feel the weight of this? Do you understand? And maybe this is you this morning. And if so, I pray that God will specifically, very pointedly minister to you, your heart this morning. And one of the things that sometimes we forget in reading Scripture is that we've been given the human author. This is a masculine of David. Don't forget who is writing this. The brave warrior who killed lions, bears, who slew Goliath, killed countless other enemies, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. David, this mighty warrior, this fearless fearless man, writes this. 
Does that teach you anything this morning? This man is no coward. He is not one who is easily shaken. He is not easily afraid. And yet one of those things that we think about as we think of manly men, masculine men, men who, who are the kind of men that, that, that we say, oh, guys, just he's such a man. Can they feel this way? Can they put this kind, these kinds of thoughts and feelings and emotions on paper? So it's amazing that one of the greatest warriors in the Bible is also a poet and a songwriter. It doesn't match with most of what we think. And so the idea is whether we show this or not, whether we say these things out loud or not, all of us at times come to places like this. And we shouldn't be upset if we find ourselves in these places as if we are not man enough or brave enough or courageous enough if we have these challenges. William Plummer writes this, no man knows how he will behave in any severe trial until it is over. We are wholly dependent upon God for constancy of mind. We don't know how we're going to respond in the most difficult of trials. We don't know our response until we're past it and through it. John Calvin said this, We are all good soldiers so long as things go well with us. But when brought to close combat, our weakness is soon apparent. <laughs> now, our weakness isn't always apparent in close com combat. It wasn't always apparent for David. But here we find him in a moment of weakness, in a moment overwhelmed even to the point of death, despairing of life and anguish and moaning and groaning. He enumerates his complaint to God. And now he comes to another request. He asks God to destroy his enemy. Verse 9. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. Destroy his enemy. And this is strong. He asks God to destroy his enemy. Why is he so strong in his request? Well, there's a four after it. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. Verse 9. For I see... This is what is going on. Because of this, this is why his prayer is so strong. This enemy is not only going after David, their wickedness, their betrayal, they're going after David is not only affecting him, it's affecting the city of God, Jerusalem. It is causing violence and strife in the city. This enemy is stirring up people against David, is leading to violence and strife, iniquity and trouble, oppression and fraud in the city of God. It's one thing for someone to attack you personally. It's one thing for someone to attack the man of God personally. It's another thing when they attack the people of God, the city of God, the church of God. And so there's one thing to have a personal enemy, but when that enemy against you is beginning to have effects on more than one person, more than you, on, on even the church of God, the city of God, then what do we do? So Paul writes in Romans 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. People who cause divisions, people who stir up strife. Notice what Paul writes to Titus in his pastoral epistle. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, what are we to do? Have nothing more to do with him. Twice, Paul says, avoid them. Get, uh, get, stay away from them. And so in a church context, it's one thing for you to go after the pastor or go after an elder personally to have personal issues, as bad as that is. It's another thing when that strife or that division or that attack stirs up division in the church. So we have no place in the church for division. We have no place in the church for people who cause division. They're to be warned once, they're to be warned twice, and then what? Remove them, put them out. They are the most dangerous now, I want to say this carefully. Now, I'm going to say this. So let me, let me say something here. So we're moving pretty good. That's, that's trouble. When I look at the clock, I see we're moving pretty good because then I start slowing down. So I'm going to slow down for a minute. I can say this at this time because we are probably more unified right now at Calvary Baptist Church than we have been for a long time. My opinion. And so there is nobody here today or no one in our church family that I'm going after when I say this. So there's not someone like taking a shot at someone who's causing division. I, I found a spot to go after them. Not at all. It's easier to preach this when there is no division. So when the times of division come, you've already put it out there. So this is why I feel free to say this. There's no issues. There's nothing going on that I'm aware of that, that rises to this level. But what happens is we don't take this seriously. We are more concerned with other sins 
and quicker to move with church discipline with other sins than this one. And someone who stirs up strife, according to Proverbs 6, what are there, six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are abomination. Notice I quoted that in King James, yea, seven are abomination. And one of those is a person who causes division. And here it is in the New Testament. Avoid them. And so David here asked God to destroy his enemy, not solely because of their attack to him, but because of its effect on the people of God in the city of God. Notice what is happening because this is going on. And on its walls, in its midst, in its marketplace, we have this great upheaval in the city of God. And so God, destroy my enemy. And now you've been wondering, and we've read it already, but here he then finds the opportunity to clarify the specifics of his situation. And David clarifies the specific of his situation in verse 12. This wicked enemy who taunts him and disrespects him is actually not an enemy or an adversary, but is his companion and familiar friend. A very close friend who used to take sweet counsel with David, who worshiped with him in God's house. So this, this enemy wasn't always an enemy. This enemy was a close friend, a confidant, a counselor, someone who went to church for years together. We worshiped together. We served together. We were in this together. Is there any greater pain than the pain of betrayal? When a friend becomes your enemy? Most of us have had this happen on some level, at some scale. So can you think of something worse? I can think of a couple things. I think the only thing that trumps the pain of this would be uh, the sense of uh, relational pain, and that is if it was a family member more than a close friend. If it was a spouse, a parent, a child. Only a family member can hurt you more than a close friend. Have you felt that? Have you had this happen to you? Can you sympathize with David? I would just say this. If you, if you can't sympathize with this because this has, hasn't happened, then prepare yourself and pay attention in advance because it will happen. It will happen. We live in a sinful, broken world, and you will be betrayed. You will be hurt by people very close to you sometime in your life. Now, good news is, is sometimes God in his grace brings reconciliation and restoration of relationship. People repent, people ask forgiveness, and things can be restored. We praise God for that. But that doesn't take away the hurt and pain of the betrayal or the, the, the split of the relationship. So we pray for repentance, we pray for reconciliation, but sometimes it doesn't come. But we know the pain of betrayal. Let me ask you this. Besides you sympathizing with David, is there anyone else you can think of who would sympathize even better than us? Is it ringing any bell in your head? Is Jesus coming to mind? Does Jesus know what this is like? Jesus was betrayed by Judas. His close companion turned him over to be crucified. So I would say that none of us here have been betrayed this bad as Christ. Why? Because you're still breathing. None of you were turned over to be crucified. So you're still, that no matter how bad the betrayal was, you live through it. Jesus was betrayed by his close companion, betrayed unto death. He sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Someone who had been his close companion. But notice this, and this is the good news as we put these things together. All of this was part of God's plan to redeem us. The betrayal of the Son of God, the selling out for 30 pieces of silver, the close companion becoming a betrayer and turning on his close friend. This was a part of God's plan to redeem us. Jesus' friend became his enemy so that Jesus' enemies could become his friends. Jesus had to die so we might live. He had to be betrayed so that we might be reconciled. Do you see what Christ has done for us? All of this had to take place so that we could receive these blessings. I think of that song, we talked about it last week. 
Once his enemies, now seated at his table. Jesus, thank you. But notice, for that to happen, Jesus' friend becomes his enemy so that we, his enemies, can become his friends. Praise God. Hallelujah. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not received forgiveness of your sins, if you've not trusted in Christ and been redeemed, then trust in Christ today. He took the punishment on the cross so that people who have hated him, people who have broken his law, people who have gone against him can be redeemed, can be forgiven, can have their price paid as they trust in him and in him alone. That's the good news of the gospel. So the good news of the gospel is that even in the moment of betrayal, even in a moment of great pain and great agony and great suffering, God is a God who saves. God is a God who redeems. God is a God who reconciles. See the reconciliation to the Father for his enemies. See the salvation found in Christ, even in the Old Testament, as we see fulfillment and connections in the new. One last request from David. Verse 15, he asked God to kill his enemy. He asked God to kill his enemy. He says, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. I, I don't know. It's hard sometimes to read the scripture and say, well, huh, you know, <laughs> what do we do with these verses? Um, one thing we don't do is we don't just simply quote, love your enemies as a response to negate what Christ is said here, what God's word says here. We don't just say, God said, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, and that just negates these. This is a man of, after God's own heart. This is, this is a prayer request that we should learn from and not just cancel out with some other verse. Do not do that with scripture. Bring scripture together in its fullness and understand how it works together. We don't use one verse of scripture to deny another verse of scripture and vice versa. So, so be careful there. So what do we do with this? Well, notice the one thing we do is we don't stop reading halfway through the verse or halfway through the point. Because. Because. Or, no, I'm not in the right place. I'm sorry. I was looking at the wrong verse. For, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Let death steal over them. Let, they go, let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. This betrayer of David is unrepentant. He is full of evil. So we can read this as an understanding that we ask God to destroy the unrepentant enemies of God. We ask God to take them out of this life where they do great harm. And that is not a wicked request. We first ask for God to save their soul and we preach repentance. But if people will not repent... If people are hard-hearted in that and they are working such wicked evil, attacking David, causing such trouble in the city of God, what would we do if they will not repent? Should we allow the evil person to flourish so that we can demonstrate our love in letting evil flourish and destroy what God wants done because we are being kind? Now, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. I'm not saying we take them out. But we do pray for God to take them out. So it's one thing to think of this. So let me just put it in stark contrast. If there is an active shooter on the loose, if someone is driving around a city, let's say Memphis, uh, just, you know, just for example's sake, you know, just kind of picking one out of the midair, shooting people at random, and we hear about that, what would our prayer be? Lord, destroy the wicked. May they go down to Sheol immediately. Why? Because the innocent are being murdered. And we want God to protect innocent life. And when God protects innocent life, at times it means the death of the wicked. So you can't have it both ways. You can't love your enemy in such a way that allows them to continue doing wicked and terrible and horrible things to others. Loving your neighbor as yourself means that if you have an opportunity to protect life, to preserve life, you step in front, you interpose, and you protect life even at the point of taking someone else's life. That is why all killing is not murder and all killing is not wrong. So we try to understand how these things fit together. And we understand that when someone who is wicked is doing active wicked things and bringing destruction and death and, and terrible things, we, 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 we would ask for God to destroy them. 
And that would be righteous requests. That would be a God-glorifying request. Now, there's a difference between that and someone being your personal enemy and someone going hard after you. So if it's not someone... So let me put it this way. So I gave you an example. I'll use another example. And these aren't in my notes, so if they're bad, we'll just have to correct them in the, in the, in the remix or something. Uh, these aren't good. Uh, it's one thing for me to pray that in the sense of the Memphis shooter. It's another thing if I've got a neighbor who's causing me a lot of grief, who's yelling at me, who can complain. They call the cops on me. They show up at my door yelling because my kids are doing something or my chickens are in their yard. And by the way, Tracy wants me to let you know our chickens are laying eggs. Okay, this is a, this is a public service announcement. Moving on. So I've got a neighbor who's upset and frustrated and gets in your face and is really angry and they're just so mad and they're causing all kinds of grief. Do I pray for God to destroy them and take them down to Sheol? No. No. Someone messed up back there. Uh, no, you don't pray that. That's not the prayer. You pray for their salvation. You witness to them. It's one thing to receive all kinds of oppression and attack and persecution, even for the cause of Christ, and witness and take it. If they slap you on the right, what do you do? You turn to the left also. But that's a personal offense. It's a personal attack. That's different than if they're going around shooting the other neighbors in the neighborhood. Do you see the difference? I'm, I'm drawing a real strong contrast because we have to understand the difference. And if we equate all things as one thing, we'll get it wrong on one side or the other. Either we'll ask God to destroy everybody who's not a believer or anybody who causes me any kind of grief. So I'm walking through the store and someone bumps into me, Lord, destroy the wicked. You know, it's like, what? No, don't do that. On the other side, we will then say, well, we should be nice to everyone. We should just let murderers live. And, and, and hopefully you get it. I'll stop. Sometimes you just have to stop. Now, there's another way to see this verse a little bit differently, so I'll give this as another potential um, interpretation. Now, David is not praying this, but more giving it as a declaration of truth, that he's not asking for this to happen, but he's proclaiming what will be their end. Death will steal over them. They will go down to Sheol alive because they are unrepentantly wicked. Now, I, I, I see it more as a request, and that's how the ESV translates it, but it could be seen differently. And so there's different ways of looking at it a little bit differently, but I believe the point still stands. Now, what do we do with this section of the psalm? There's two parts, and I want to bring some real specific application. So I want to give you some lessons for complaining biblically. This is real practical. First thing, complain to God, not about God. That's what I said in the first point. This is David complaining to God. This is not David complaining about God. If you've been reading through your Bible reading challenge, you spent time learning about people who grumble and complain a lot in the Israelite people. They grumble, 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 and they don't grumble to God. They don't complain to God. They complain about God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us here? Why have you brought us here? Why wouldn't you let us stay in Egypt and eat at the meat pots? Why won't you provide water? Why won't you provide food? God, you're treating us wrong. God, you're doing wrong. You have mistreated us. That's complaining about God. Even if you're doing that in prayer, it's still about God. It's not to God. That kind of complaint is evil. It's wicked. It's sin. And be careful because God destroyed those people. So in your prayers to God, you don't come to God and say, God, you're doing terrible things. You're wrong. This is terrible. Why are you mistreating me this way? Why are you doing something so terrible? Why don't you get it right? Why do you keep messing up? That would be horrible and wicked. This is not what David is doing. David brings the complaint of his circumstances. He blings, brings his complaint of how it is affecting, affecting him and his emotions and his difficulties, and he brings those honestly to God and says, God, this is what I'm going through. He complains to God, and that is biblical, and that is good, and that is right. And you need to learn how to do it, especially when you're in times like this. Because if you're not complaining to God, who are you going to complain to? Well, that's point number two, complain to God, not to others. How many of us feel free to vent to our spouse, to vent to a close friend, to take all of our frustrations, this is what's happening, this is how I feel, this is how terrible it is? And we feel free to vent to others, and we don't vent to God. Now notice it's to God, not about God. Even if we're doing our complaint right to others, why are we not complaining to God, but we're so free to complain to others? 
We live in a therapeutic society. I mean, unbelievably therapeutic. This is like, it's like every day, it's like all over the place. All people can talk about is their therapist and going for help and all their emotional problems. And, and we, the reason is because we've lost God in our society and no wonder we're miserable. We have no answers, no solution. But notice, even among Christians, it's, it's like, well, I can't talk to God for an hour, but I can go to a therapist weekly for an hour. Now, that's not saying that Christians shouldn't go to counseling and get biblical counsel and get help. Not at all. In fact, you should do that. You should bring your needs and get help for people. But the idea of I'm just going to go talk to someone who just listens as I explain all of my problems in life when we won't even pray to God. <laughs> who can solve your problems more? A therapist, a counselor, or God Almighty? So yes, talk to a therapist, talk to a counselor, talk to somebody, get help, talk to a friend, but talk to them after, talk to them second, and talk to God most. Number three, I've already kind of said this, but we'll repeat it. It is good and right to honestly recite your circumstances and feelings to God. It is good and right to honestly recite your circumstances and feelings to God. This is lament. This is biblical lament. It is good for you to bring these things to God because as you speak them out loud to God in prayer, you hear what is going on in your heart. It's good to say it out loud, to speak openly and honestly to the one who can truly help, the one who can truly save, the one who can truly rescue, the one who can truly comfort and truly encourage you. And you need that comfort. You need that encouragement. You need that strength. He is the one that can do it. So bring it to him and openly and honestly share what's going on and how you are responding. It might not be pretty. You might have a sinful response. You might have a bad response. Lord, I'm angry at you. Lord, I'm frustrated. Lord, I think you're messed up. Lord, I, I think you've done a terrible thing. Lord, I don't understand how this is going. That's fine. That's good. That's honest. That's different than saying, God, you've messed up. Because if you have been thinking you, God's messed up, he knows it. So for you to tell him, this is what I'm thinking, and Lord, I know this is wrong, that's different. And so you have to understand how to do this. So we sin when we complain about God instead of to God. When we complain to others who can rarely do anything about it, when we ignore, withhold, or suppress our emotions from God, and we sin when we fail to pray. And that's our biggest sin. So David complains to God. Secondly, verses 16 to 23, David casts his burden on God. In verse 16, the but signals a change in the song. But I call to God. So he's been complaining, he's been giving his lament, he's been sharing, he's been opening up. But here we see a change, the change in focus from his circumstances to God, from his enemy to his Lord, from his feelings to God's actions. And the but should show up on your prayers. Complain, lament, talk to God about everything, but there should be a change when you get your eyes off of your circumstances and onto the Lord you're praying to from getting your eyes off of your emotions and what you're, how you're feeling to God's actions and get your eyes off your enemies and on the almighty God. So what does he do? He calls to God. He calls to God. Our most powerful weapon against every evil is prayer. Our most powerful weapon against every evil is prayer. Have you learned that yet? You should have because I've already said it like 10 times so far. Okay, I'm gonna keep hammering that. Your most powerful weapon is prayer. If you want things to change in this world, if you want evil to be done away with, if you want wicked people to go down uh, to shield, then what should you do? You should pray more than anything. Pray. It's our most powerful weapon. And so David here is praying. He calls out to God. And in his prayer, he's praying in confidence. The Lord will save me. Hear his confidence. Hear his statement of faith. And he's not just praying once. Evening and morning and at noon, he utters his complaint and moans. This is constancy in prayer. It's not a three prayers a day formula. This is constancy. I pray morning, evening. I pray at noon. I'm praying constantly. I'm bringing these things to God constantly. Have we learned to pray without ceasing? Have you learned to pray and take these things that are burdening you down, weighing you down? Have you learned to bring them to him multiple times a day? Whenever they come to mind, bring them to God. Whenever you're tempted to complain to others, whenever you're tempted to not see God's hand in all circumstances, take it to the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that building specific habits of prayer is bad. 
If you have a morning, noon, and night prayer habit where you specifically, intentionally have carved out some time, that's good. I believe David had that habit so that when hard times came, he already has the habit of praying regularly throughout the day built into his schedule, and now he just expands that in times of greatest need. If you are not in a regular habit of praying, then praying without ceasing is almost impossible because you have not built prayer in when things are good. When things are bad, your, your knee-jerk reaction is not going to be prayer. And he, as he prays, he's confident. He says it. He'd ask the Lord to hear, but notice here in this part of the prayer, he says, the Lord will hear me. He hears my voice. He says, Lord, hear and answer, and now he says, he does hear. There's two parts of the prayer. And he confidently proclaims his own redemption and his enemy's humiliation. He redeems my soul. He will give ear to me. He will humble them. Now, why would God save him and destroy his enemy? Well, he gives some biblical reasons. They do not fear God. Verse, in the verse 19, they do not fear God. That's why God's going to save him. He fears God. They have violated their covenant. Verse 20, he violated his covenant, this enemy. And he had evil motives from the start. His speech was smooth as butter, but there was war in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Actually, what I thought was my close companion, what I thought was my close friend, what I thought was someone who loved me and cared for me and was working on my side has always been an enemy. Everything he said, the way he said it, he was always out to get me, and I didn't see it. And on this basis, God, redeem me, save me, and destroy him. If you are asking for God to destroy someone, if you're asking for God to take someone out, you should have very clear biblical reason for why God should remove them from this earth. It should be clear cut, it should be biblical, and you should know it. We've talked about that already, I won't go into any more details. Secondly, letter B, he testifies about God. So he calls to God, and he, then he testifies about God. The key verse is verse 22 in this entire song. But what's so interesting about verse 22 is that it's not a part of the prayer. This is an aside in the song. This is a narrator's note. I mean, it's a part of the song, but it's a part of the song for a different purpose. This is a pastoral exhortation. It's a very short sermon. <laughs> David drives home his point to the congregation. Remember, the congregation is singing the song. And so as he shows his way of complaint and he shows his way of casting his burden on the Lord, now he says to the congregation his exhortation. He says, cast your burden on the Lord. He's talking to you. Cast your burden on the Lord. Peter picks up this very verse in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, where Peter says, casting all your anxieties on him. And then Peter adds something that is not necessarily here, because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties, taking all of your cares, taking all of your burdens, throwing all of them on the Lord because he cares for you. That was Peter's reason. So the psalmist gives us one thing to do and then two reasons to do it. And the first reason is the Lord will sustain you. And he cares for you. That's New Testament. He will sustain you. That's Old Testament. And they work hand in hand. Cast your burden on the Lord because the Lord will sustain you. We saw it in um, Psalm 55 verse 4. The Lord, I'm sorry, 54 verse, we saw it last week. There it is, 54 verse 4. The Lord is the upholder of my life. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. Cast your burden on the Lord, Lord, because he is your only sustainer. And then there's another promise. The Lord will never permit the righteous to be moved. The Lord will never permit you to be moved. Cast your burden on the Lord because he sustains. He will not permit you to be moved. Does that mean that nothing bad will happen to you? I mean, the psalm answers itself, doesn't it? David is being, has been betrayed, and the Lord will never let the righteous be moved. Well, that must mean that David's not righteous because obviously this betrayal is him being moved. No. He's been betrayed, but he has not been moved because his feet are firmly planted in the Lord. 
and the winds and the waves and the betrayals and the hardships and the difficulties and the sicknesses and, and the job losses and the fires and the tornadoes and the hurricanes, Psalm 46, he will not be moved because he's planted on the rock. That does not mean bad things don't happen. That means when bad things happen, when the most terrible terrifying and terrible circumstances happen, you will not be moved if your feet are planted firm on the Lord Jesus Christ, the rock who never moves. That's the promise. And so because he will not allow you to be moved when you're planted on him, now you cast your burden on him because of the promises. The righteous here, as we think about it, the righteous will never be moved, are God's children. They are the congregation of the Lord. This is talking about Christians. It's not talking about sinlessly perfect, but it's talking about those who are the Lord's. He will sustain you. He will uphold your life. He will keep you from being moved. Therefore, cast your burden on him. And then verse 23, he trusts in God. He trusts in God. He casts his burden on the Lord, and God casts his enemies into the pit of destruction. There's another contrast here. Notice the play on words and the contrast it gives. Notice back in verse 16, I call to the Lord. He tells you then to cast your burden on the Lord, but you, O God, will cast them into the pit of destruction. I cast my burdens on God. God cast my enemies into hell. That's the idea. Another contrast given between the outcome of David's enemies and David's actions. But I will trust in you. But you, O God, will cast them down, but I will trust in you. I cast my burden on the Lord. You cast them down into the pit of destruction, but I will trust in you. He's back and forth in these butts between these contrasts. He's showing you the differences. The triumph of the wicked is short. Many times their lives are cut short. I've said this before on Sunday night. I'll continue to say it. The righteous thrive. The wicked have their way until they don't. This betrayer of David is winning. It's terrible for David. Things are going wrong. The city's against him. Things are terrible. You can read some of the accounts in, in the Old Testament. And everybody's winning all up until the moment when they lose. Have you ever noticed how that works? You know, like Michigan is beating Michigan State all the way up until the last field goal, and then they lose. So it looks like victory all the way up to the last moment. Of course, we have to switch the, term, the teams for it to be biblical, but I was just being nice. So the people of God lose all the way up to the end, in a sense. And so this enemy, but, but it seems like they're winning all the way through, but then notice their lives are cut halfway short. This wicked man has his way, but he's only 40, and then he's gone. I thought he was going to live forever. I thought he was going to have success forever until God has his end with him. Know that truth. Trust in the Lord. What you see is not all that is. Have you learned that? When the prophet of God looks out on the enemies of God, he sees the mighty angelic army around him, but his servant doesn't. And so what does God say? What does the, the prophet say? He says, Lord, let him see. And God gives him sight, and he sees what he didn't see before. All he saw was this mighty army against them. And now he sees the mighty army of God, and guess what? He saw what he couldn't see before. Do you see with eyes of faith what you can't see? It looks like we're losing. It looks like we will never win. It looks like the enemy is winning. But I will trust in you. You will cast them down. You will have the victory. We know the end, do we not? And so they will win all the way up until the moment God has had enough. And that's our trust. So what do we do? Well, if you're not a Christian, what you must do is first trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only God who can save you. If you're here in terrible circumstances, if you're here with misery and groaning and moaning in a terrible life, if you're a person who listens to all the secular music that talks about all the therapy and all the things you need to do and all the brokenness of this world, and you feel that brokenness, and you're not trusting in Christ, he's the God who can save you. He's the God who can heal you. He's the God who can turn things around. He's the only one who can save. Turn to Christ. Find the help you need with all of the difficulties and trials and challenges of life. And if you're a Christian, make a habit of complaining to the Lord and casting your cares on the Lord. Make a habit of complaining to the Lord 
and casting your cares on the Lord. Learn how to do it. Learn how to do it right. Do it biblically. And so what the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray. This is what we say today at the end of the psalm. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like this. And we apply these truths in our daily lives, especially when the hardest times come. If you're in those times, this is your psalm. Read it, memorize it, pray it, apply it to you in your circumstances. Father, we trust in you. You are our only hope. You are the sustainer of our life. You are the one who cares for us. So Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to complain biblically, in faith, and in trust. Teach us how to cast our cares on you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I just realized as I was closing your prayer, I didn't give you all the blanks. You guys are like, what's going on? I, I thought of something in my prayer, and I said I hadn't said it. So guess what? We got a, a, a coda on the end. So you stay right here. You're fine. What does it mean to cast your cares on the Lord? First of all, you pray to God for salvation. So you pray to God for salvation. So you, you go to him. He's the God who saves. But this is the most important part. You trust in God for salvation. You trust in God for salvation, which means when you cast your burdens on God, where do you leave your burden? You leave your burden with the Lord. Because this is how we do it. We cast our burden on the Lord. So we're going to complain to God. We're going to do it all right. We're going to bring our burdens to God. We're going to cry out to God for salvation, do all that. And then we're done praying. And what do we do? We bend down. We pick that burden back up. And we walk away from prayer with our burden. So what do you have to do if you're going to cast your burden on the Lord? You're going to come to the Lord and you're going to leave your burden with him. So many times we, we, we walk away with it. And every time it comes, every time you're tempted to, to solve it yourself or have it yourself, every time that happens, what are you going to do? You're going to cry out to God in prayer and you're going to give it back to him. When you recognize that you've picked it back up when, without even meaning to, when it's back in your mind and you're, you're anxious and you're worried and, and you're trying to solve it, take it back to him, lay it at his feet and walk away. Cast your burden on the Lord. Trust in God for salvation. I want to make sure you get that. That's very important. Good application point. Let's stand and sing.